Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. When he had come back to Capernaum, so we're back in Capernaum. If you recall last week, chapter 1 ended with Jesus heading out, going on a preaching tour all around the Galilee. He would go to several different villages, several different towns, little hamlets, unwalled villages, podunk places, and he visited them all because that is why he said, I came to preach the word. He came to bring the word. He returns now, however, to Capernaum, which is a seaside town right on the shores of the Galilee. I mean, it it immediately goes right there down to the sea. And it's a beautiful little location there on the Galilee. It was Jesus' home base during his three-year ministry. He settled there. It's one of my favorite places on the Israel tour. And he often returned to this home in his three-year ministry. But it wasn't Jesus' home. As you may know, Jesus was a homeless man. That's a stirring thought. Jesus didn't have a home. Never owned a car. Well, no one in those days did, but he didn't own a vehicle. No transportation, no animals. He had no flocks or herds. He had nothing to call his own save the clothes on his back and the relationships that he birthed. It was Peter's home that he came back to. We know this from Luke. We know this from some of the other gospel uh, accounts. But Jesus was homeless. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20 tells us, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, Jesus said, has nowhere to lay his head. I love that about Jesus because he was not bound to this earth, bound to the things of this earth. He had a heavenly vision, a heavenly calling, and he walked it out. But when he came back to Capernaum, he stayed at Peter's house. And he's there now. He's come back to Peter's house from this highly successful preaching tour. We know it's highly successful because you can't get in or out of the house. People are packed around the doors. Here we are at the very beginning of just the second chapter of Mark, and we are already deep into the ministry of Jesus. Things are already cooking. They're already moving at a rapid pace. I remind you, when God moves, He moves immediately. Now, He may take a long time leading up to that that stepping out, that moving. But when He moves, He moves quickly, He moves immediately, and it can be stunning. The ministry of Jesus... When he stepped out into ministry, it struck the Galilee like a match thrown into dry brush. And a wildfire came out of it. Word spread. The news spread. There's, there's someone here now. An amazing rabbi. You've got to hear him teach. An incredible healer. You've, you've got to see him heal. Some saying he's like one of the prophets of old. Others saying, this one, this one may be the Messiah we've been waiting for. But when Jesus came on the scene, it literally lit up the landscape. Matthew describes it this way. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 9 saying, Matthew chapter 4 verse 15, The the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. You see, Galilee is Zebulun and Naphtali territory. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who are sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. The light didn't spring out of Jerusalem. It should have, you know, by all accounts, Jerusalem is the center of spirituality and worships where the temple was. Why not there? Why would the prophet even say, in the Galilee, the Galilee, Hebrew for the Galilee is literally Galil Goyim, Galilee of the Gentiles, the district of the non-believers. And that's where the light's going to first shine. That's where Jesus set foot on His public ministry. And life in the Galil was, was dark, shadowy. It was under Roman occupation. The whole land was. But at least in Jerusalem, up in that mountainous area with its strong walls, at least you could pretend like Rome wasn't in charge. At least you could ignore it to a degree. Not in the Galilee. Not when only a few decades before, two, three decades before, Galilean fishermen had been murdered by Rome. They had attempted an uprising. They had hidden up in the, in the crags and the caves of Mount Arbel, and Rome had smoked them out. Actually, it was Herod who did that. So it wasn't 
the most comfortable place. It was a blue-collar place. It was a place of hard work, hard labor. The people lived in shadow there. They were even outcasts among their own people there. Because again, this wasn't Jerusalem. You remember it's Nathaniel who would say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, Nazareth is on the southern end of the Galilee. Anything good come out of that? Circuit of the Gentiles? And yet in that shadowy drudgery of life, Jesus set foot. The Jews have been waiting 400 years. Listen, if you in your life are feeling like life is a drudgery, you feel like you're spinning your wheels, you feel like you're just going from one day to the next to the next and nothing changes when things are not progressing as perhaps you'd hope they would progress, pause and realize for a moment the words of Jesus who said, Mark 13, verse 35, be on the alert. Be on the alert. You do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say, now listen to this, Mark's the only one who quotes Jesus exactly this way. What I say to you, I say to all. Be on the alert. Jesus wasn't just talking to the people of the first century. He was talking to you and to me. What I say to you here and now, I say to all, be on the alert. Live on the alert. So let's continue to do so as we continue in the immediacy of Jesus' ministry. As we walk through chapter 2 tonight, I'm going to give you four words to outline the chapter. Just to help you follow along, especially if you're a note taker, I'll give you the four words right now. Number one is commotion. Commotion. Number two, paralyzation. Number three, taxation. And number four, identification. Commotion, paralyzation, taxation, identification. We begin with commotion. In these first two verses, there is quite a commotion going on. At the end of verse 1, it says, It was heard that he was at home. Now, literally, the Greek there is, having entered, it was noised that he was in the house. It was noised that he was in the house. I like that. As a boy of 13, I got my first drum set. A bright yellow American standard kit with pearl stands and zildjian cymbals. And I, oh, I just loved that thing. And it was loud. And it was noised that there was a drummer in the neighborhood. I would sit up in the upstairs room in the front of the house with my windows open, playing to my heart's content as the phone is ringing off the hook by frustrated neighbors. Yeah, it was known by the noise that there was a drummer in the house. What's the buzz in your house? What is the noise in your house? Is it known by the noise that Jesus is there? And that's something to consider because Peter's house was, uh, up until now, just the quiet house of a fisherman. He'd leave out in the morning, sometimes he would fish all night, come back quietly in the morning and crash there. This was not a noisy place before Jesus showed up, but suddenly it was the center of Christ's commotion. As we ended last week's study, we heard Jesus telling the healed leper to keep it quiet, didn't we? And he didn't do a very good job. Verse 45 of chapter 1 says, He went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to Him from everywhere. And as I said last week, now Jesus says, Go with the Gospel! But do we? Do we cause the kind of commotion that this individual leper was causing? That healed people were causing as they recognized that Jesus was the great physician, that He was not only healer, but Messiah. The Word was spreading all around. And Jesus kept saying, don't tell anybody. And they kept talking about it. And now Jesus says, tell everybody. What are we doing? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10.27, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Proclaim? Yeah, evangelize, proclamation, shout it from the rooftops. Proverbs 4.18 says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Are we getting brighter? 
Because if we're walking on the path of the righteous, there should be a greater and greater stir caused by us. We should be making waves, folks. In the name of Jesus Christ, we should be causing a commotion until He comes. Are we getting brighter? Are we getting louder with the Gospel? Or are we just hanging on until He shows up? We were not called to just hang on. We were called to go. Well, the presence of Jesus lit the people up, as I said, and they started coming from every direction, primarily to get healed. Because when healing is present, people are excited by that. And so we note in all of this commotion at the end of verse 2, look at what Jesus was doing. He was speaking the Word to them. You're going to hear that a lot in the Gospel of Mark. He was speaking the Word to them. For all this magnificent healing, Jesus didn't call TBN to establish a televised healing ministry. Jesus didn't immediately open a webpage to track His glorious revival. Again and again and again we see Jesus doing what He came to do. Look back at verse 38 of Mark chapter 1. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. I came to teach the Word. I came to proclaim the Gospel. That is the ministry of Jesus. The healing was secondary. Wonderful, yes, proving Him to be the Messiah of Isaiah and the prophets. Absolutely. But it was not the primary focus of Jesus. And while the people came for healing, Jesus responded with teaching. He gave the Word when they wanted to be healed. It marked the intentional ministry of Jesus more than any other thing, and that is His teaching. Even recognizing the draw of the healing, while the Word kept spreading about Jesus, Jesus kept spreading the Word. You want to be like Jesus? Spread the Word. You want to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Preach the Word. Teach the Word. Get the Word out. If it was important for people then, how much more for us here at the end of days? Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus said, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That's strong language for someone who waters down the Word. For churches who preach less than the full counsel of the Word of God. It is strong language, Jesus says, if you water this down, if you annul the least of these, and you encourage people to do that, you're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I like the fact that they're still going to be in the kingdom of heaven. See, that's grace. But least in the kingdom of of heaven are those who say, the Word's not really necessary. We have so much ministry to do. We have healing that needs to take place. Why mess with the Word? Jesus went on to say, whoever keeps and teaches shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. May the commotion of Christ always cause us to spread His word. Verse 3 says, And then they they came, bringing to Him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to Him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above Him. and And when they had dug an opening... They let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now, I've heard this story a hundred times. Probably far more than that, hundreds of times over my life. I learned some things that I want to share with you. Things I've never seen before. Here they come, these four friends, and talk about a commotion. Literally, Jesus was bringing down the roof. He's in the house. And you see some dust begin to fall. Next thing you know, there's daylight. And think about how much roof would have to be removed for an entire pallet holding a man lying prone to be dropped down in. But beyond that, the Galilee homes typically were built with stone walls and then the roof would be wooden beams laid across. Over the wooden beams they would put tile. And then over the tile they would place dirt and thatching to weatherproof the house. The phrase here in the Greek is a great word. It's apostogazo. Apostagazo. Sounds like a musical term, Rachel, doesn't it? Yeah, you could use that. But it literally means to unroof the roof. They unroofed the roof. They had to dig through the thatching and the dirt, and then they got to the tile. 
And then they had to rip the tiles out, which is why it's interesting. Mark tells us in verse 4 that they dug an opening. Luke tells us in Luke 5.19 that they sent him down through the tiles. It's not a contradiction. They did both. They had to dig to get to the tiles, and then they removed the tiles to send the man down inside. So there was a little effort involved just in getting this man into Peter's house. This is Peter's roof, by the way. I appreciate the fact that Peter never brought it up again. You know, you don't see him down the road going, oh, Jesus, about that roof situation. Could we talk about that? He just lets it go. They would have steps along the side of the homes leading up to the roof because the roof tended to be the veranda or the patio. That was the way the homes were built there in Israel in the time. But verse 5 going on says, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. A couple things to note. The word son there is literally child. He speaks to him like a father speaking to his own. Child, your, your sins are forgiven. But it says Jesus seeing their faith. Whose faith? The four men. Not the paralytic. And I'm not saying the paralytic didn't have any faith, but his faith, listen, his faith didn't matter. The faith that matters in this story is the faith of the four friends. And Jesus saw it. Their faith was a visible thing. Well, faith is a visible thing. That's exactly what James meant in James 2.17 when he said, faith, if it has no works, is dead. You can talk all day long about having faith, but if it doesn't show up in your actions, you don't have faith. If it's compelling you to do, to act, to be, well, then you have faith. And James is very big on this. Show me your faith by what you do. I'll believe you have faith. If it's accompanied by action, well, these guys had faith. They tore open a roof for their friend. They believed, they had to. Think about this. They had to have faith because they got him down through the roof. They're not going to haul him back up the same way. They're assuming if we can get him in there, he can walk out the front door on his own. They had faith, and Jesus saw it. Active faith. Now listen. There are some faith-healing churches that will say when people aren't healed, they didn't have enough faith. In fact, I think it's what makes a lot of churches gun-shy when it comes to the idea of healing at all. Wow, if we, if we pray for healing, and if this person comes forward and says, Lord, I want to be healed, and they aren't healed, well, then someone's got a faith problem, right? Here's the thing. The faith of the paralytic isn't referred to a single time in the story. What does that tell us? It tells us sometimes Jesus just healed because He wanted to. Sometimes Jesus healed this person because of the faith of those people. This person might not have faith at all. How do you think intercessory prayer works when you've got a non-believer that people are praying for? They don't even have faith to begin with. And yet there are people praying for Him or her, and because of that intercessory prayer, the Lord begins to move and stir and convict And that person may come to faith. All I'm saying here is you cannot box healing into the faith of the person being healed. I think you can connect faith to healing, but it might be the faith of Jesus Himself, or it may be the faith of some friends or family members that brings healing to an individual. God is not bound by a single person's faith. I may not have faith for healing, But as Jesus sees and hears someone else's faithful prayer for me, healing may come to me just as it did to the paralytic. So, pray in faith. Pray in faith that others might be healed. Pray in faith that others might find their redemption in Christ. James chapter 5, verse 14 is a great example of this. James said, Is anyone among you sick? Then you must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Whose faith? Those praying. praying. Right. It's the elders' faith. In, In that instance, prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. And so... We're all called to pray in faith. But God is not limited by our faith. 
And oftentimes there are people we don't even know are praying, and God's listening to their prayers, even to answer our faithless prayers. Verse 6 going on. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now their theology was correct, but it was without faith. Which brings me to the second point after commotion, and that's paralyzation. I'm not concerned with the paralysis of the man. That's going to be easily healed. There's a paralysis in the faith of the Pharisees. The Pharisees in this story, in fact, they're going to crop up four different times in chapter 2, and every time they crop up, they're looking for a way to condemn Jesus. This early in his ministry, we're talking in the first six months, they're already on his tail. They're already chasing him down. They're already looking to find fault, and they are paralyzed because of it. Paralyzation. The same story here is repeated in Matthew 9 and Luke 5. But Luke 5.17 tells us the scribes and the Pharisees, it's not just the scribes as listed in Mark's verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. It's the scribes, it's the Pharisees. Luke says, from every town in the Galilee and from all over Judea, including Jerusalem. See how far the word had already spread? It's all the way down in Jerusalem. And so, of course, the church leaders, the Jewish leaders, they had to dispatch quickly some guys. Get up there and find out what's going on. Check this guy out. They're already rattled because of their authority being challenged by this Galilean. What's going on? Go find out. So they send their guys up there. They all descended on Capernaum. You know, like a bunch of lawyers and reporters. (laughs) Why did they show up to check out the credentials and the credibility of Jesus? Now again, they were right to wonder about Jesus offering forgiveness. Only God can give forgiveness for sin. Only God can do that. They knew that. It's Hebrew law. It's Hebrew teaching. Isaiah 43.25, the Lord says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, the prophet Daniel says, To the Lord God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. Forgiveness comes from God alone. Micah the prophet, chapter 7, verse 18. He said, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of His possession? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in unchanging love. So understand, the Pharisees were looking to find fault, but they were spot on in their theology. It is only God... Only God who can forgive sin. Only God who can get rid of the spots. And that's why Jesus forgave this man. Because only God could do it. You understand what I'm saying? This paralyzes the scribes and the Pharisees from realizing Jesus' nature. Only faith could have released them to walk out in active belief that Jesus was who He said He was. So they missed it. Their faith is paralyzed. Consider the paralytic who's lying there. And you know the order of things here, how it comes about. Jesus first forgives his sins. He doesn't offer that as a tag. Hey, as long as you're healed, you want me to forgive your sins too? I'm I'm throwing in a bonus. It's actually a special offer this week. You get healed and forgiven. No, I forgive you, my child, son. Your sins are forgiven you. What did the paralytic hear when Jesus said that? I think exactly what he needed to hear. I think this was more important to the paralytic than getting his legs healed. Hearing that he was forgiven. You see, the people, along with you and me tonight, we can see the paralysis. We can see that his legs don't work. We can see the outward problem. What we can't see and we don't know is what's going on inside this man's heart. It's funny to me as there have been a lot of uh, scholars who have speculated about how this man's sin may have actually caused his paralysis, which is why Jesus talks about you know forgiveness first. You know, that's kind of ridiculous. It's actually typically human. Let's figure out why he's paralyzed. He had to do something, you know. The reality is this man needed to be healed of his sin before he was healed in the flesh. Because we're never truly healed until our sin is dealt with. 
you and I are like this guy. We can't hide what's going on physically outside. You know, we, we can't hide that, but we are really good at hiding the paralysis inside. We're really good at walking into the barn and hiding our guilt and our shame. We're very good at sitting down and opening up our Bibles and hiding our fears or our sorrows or our worries. We can, we can keep those to ourselves. We know how to do that. And so this man's lowered down and the problem obviously is the legs, but Jesus cuts right to the heart of the real problem. It was his sin and it was eating him up. His sin is what was really paralyzing him, not physically, but spiritually. And Jesus heals him. And in verse 8 it says, Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit with, that they were reasoning that way within themselves, that is back to the scribes and Pharisees, he said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Now that must have freaked them out. <laughs> Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your, your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins... He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus is just remarkable here. But note again what he says in verse 9. Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven? Or pick up your pallet and walk. Which one is easier? Easier for who? Easier, listen, for Jesus. Which one of these things is easier for Jesus? Healing physical disease, that's a snap. Forgiving sin would be the most difficult thing Jesus ever did. Forgiving sin would cost him his body and his blood. Which is easier? It's obviously easier to heal the man. But to forgive sin? And Jesus would have known in that moment, absolutely, He already made the tough choice. The choice of forgiveness. Apparently to Jesus, this paralytic was worth the forgiveness of sins. This paralytic was worth the shedding of His blood. And by the way, so are you. If you were the only person lowered in through the roof... Jesus would forgive your sins because that's how precious you are to Him, how precious I am to Him. And I'll admit to you, there are times in my life when I have felt felt absolutely worthless not to Jesus. You are never worthless to Him. He died for you. That should be proof enough for us. Verse 13. And He went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to Him, and... He was teaching them. Jesus went by the seashore. The word by there is para in the Greek. It literally means alongside. Like the paracleto or or paraclesis, the Holy Spirit is one who comes alongside us. And so what the word is indicating is that Jesus was walking along the side of the sea. And Woost in his word study says this suggests, the way it's written, it suggests the idea that he loved to walk along the seashore. Perhaps he went out there for rest and for quiet. And for the opportunity to be alone with God, His Father. (laughs) But the people kept coming. They just kept showing up and kept coming. But note this. He's not healing them now. He's teaching them. They keep coming out to Him and He keeps teaching them. Every opportunity He has to teach the Word, He is using. Because while, while miracles and healing can be exciting and can be invigorating... It is teaching that gets into a heart and literally changes the course of a life. The paralytic had his sins forgiven and his legs restored. But for all those who they just had the healing, hey, that might make life better for a day or two or three. But ultimately, they're still going to be in the same heart. They're still going to be walking out the same path unless the Word gets in. And Jesus knows the Word of God can change the course of a person's life. Verse 14, we see it take place. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Number three, taxation. 
taxation. Levi in the tax booth, the IRS kiosk there at the Galilee. IRS, internal Roman stealing is what's going on here. Okay. The Jews, <laughs> the Jews hated their tax collectors. For a couple of reasons. Number one, they were traitors. And number two, they were extortioners. To be a Jew collecting money for the Romans was a traitorous thing to do. How dare you take our money and give it to them? But on top of that, the Romans had a deal with the tax collectors. You collect X amount of money from the people. doesn't matter if they're the 99% or the one. They were all taxed. You collect the money from the people, X amount of dollars. Everything above and beyond that, that's your salary. And so that's how they got paid. And they would bilk their own people. They padded their own wallets by jacking up the taxes. The people knew it. The tax collectors knew it. And so they were outsiders in Israel. But Jesus comes along and He changes the course of Levi's life. And by the way, He doesn't do it by saying, Quit it, Levi! Stop doing what you're doing! Quit your sinning! What does Jesus say? Follow me. Two words. He didn't change Matthew, Levi, Matthew, same guy. He didn't change Levi and then say, follow me. He said, follow me, knowing it would change him. That's how it works, gang. That's why we should expect, as we're bringing family and friends to Jesus here at the bridge, we should expect some messy people whose lives have not changed, who may be alive and excited and willing to follow Jesus, but their behavior, their patterns, and the things they're used to doing have not changed. We need to be okay with that. We need to recognize that lost people take some time to get found. Saved immediately, but sanctified over time, just as we have been. I'm so thankful for what God has just done in the last year of my life. Or the last ten years. You wouldn't have wanted to know me as a pastor twenty years ago. I mean, there, there would have been a lot of issues. Still a lot of issues, but I hide them well. No, he just says, follow me. And Levi leaves the booth and he walks with Jesus and his life is on a totally different trajectory. Now, he is following the Lord. Understand this. When Jesus says, follow me, as he's already said to Simon and Andrew, he's already said it to James and John, now he says, Levi, follow me. He's using a single word in the Greek. And the word literally means... Walk the same road as me. Join me, is what he's saying. He's not saying, look, trail off behind me for a while. I'm going to head out this way. I'll look back and just see if you're there. Follow me back at you know at the back of the church. No offense to you guys in the back. I'm not saying anything. It's a short building, so you're really not in the back. But he's not saying, trail after me. Wander along. He's saying, join me. Walk with me here. And I like that better. I almost wish the translation said, join me, because that's what he's saying. He means for you, he means for me to join him, to walk with him, to be alongside him. But watch this. Jesus not only doesn't demand instantaneous change in Levi, he also doesn't demand that everything be left behind, especially in terms of people, because in the next verse, we see the kind of people that are still hanging out. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. His house is Levi's house. Luke tells us that. It's Levi's house. Matthew's house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus. By the way, the Greek word for sinners is sinners. Okay? And they were dining with Jesus and with his disciples. For there were many of them. And they were following him. They were joining him. Again, Luke makes this clear, this is Matthew's house. And as Matthew followed Jesus, apparently a lot of his old gang, his buds from the bars, his co-tax collecting scoundrels, they're all hanging out now with Jesus, and they start following Jesus. They see the change in Matthew. They see and listen to Jesus. They see that he accepts them even as they are. And they're like, who does that? Certainly not the Pharisees. Certainly not the Jewish leaders. They don't treat us this way. This is amazing. And they are in. And all that just to say, don't be too quick to cut off non-believing friends. Now, if they are dragging you down, if they are a hindrance to your faith, if you find yourself going back to old ways, then you need to reevaluate. But man, we need to have non-believing Gentile friends. 
I've told you a few times, I, I just, I love David, our, our recording engineer down at the studio. I love this guy. I love hanging out with him. He is so radically different from me than probably anybody I know. But one of the things that I get most out of this whole recording thing is being with David, an absolute non-believer. He is, <laughs> he's as far left spiritually, politically, and everything else that you can possibly imagine. And I really like him. And I'm just reminded, and it's kind of hard when you're a pastor, but I'm reminded we need non-believing friends. Why? For their sake. So that they can be believing and follow along as well. Invite them. Invite them along. You might be surprised. They might just pack the house because of Jesus. Wouldn't it be awesome if on a Sunday morning we walked out of the door and there were like 20 people out there smoking... And there's like a couple of people breaking out cans of beers for the for the picnic. It's like, okay, wait, wait a minute, whoa, you know. It's like some guys playing some music that we could you turn that down? But I mean, wouldn't it be great if it just got messy around here? You know, parents are shuttling their kids out to the car because of that group over there. Who are those people? They're Levi's friends, you know. <laughs> Levi Hestmark. I, I would just, I would love it. I would love it. And we teach the truth here, and we show the love of Christ, and we extend the hand of grace, but this place becomes messy because lost people are getting saved, and the mess doesn't get cleaned up as quickly as maybe we would like. Jesus is in the thick of it. He's having dinner with them. The scribes and the Pharisees see this. Oops. Of course, they had to come along eventually. And they saw He was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, and they said to His disciples, Why is He eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Doesn't He know it's going to rub off? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And note this, if He hadn't come to call sinners, we would not have the Gospel according to Matthew. Or the Gospel according to Luke. Or the Gospel according to John. Or this Gospel, Mark's Gospel. All sinners. Jesus calls Levi and He becomes Matthew, St. Matthew, and that's what He's known for now. Not known for bilking His people, but for building up the kingdom. It's marvelous. But here come the scribes and the Pharisees. It is not those who are healthy. It's those who are sick. Ironically, there's nobody healthy. Ironically, in Jesus' words, He said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I come to call sinners. And you can look at that a couple of ways. One, there are no righteous. No, not one. So basically, Jesus came to call everybody. You can also look at it this way. I didn't come to call the self-righteous. I didn't come to call those who think they're healthy and therefore don't want my aid, my help. And that can be religious folk and it can be secular folk as well. Lots of secular people who think, I'm just fine, thank you very much, I don't need your physician. I don't need a crutch. Christianity is a lot more than a crutch. It is a full operation. All right, It is surgery. It is life-altering doctoring that takes place. So that we don't continue limping down the road, but we walk restored and redeemed. That's Christianity. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You know what the real taxation is here? The real taxation was the law. And it was sin. And Jesus repealed it. Jesus repealed the tax of the law. Oh, He didn't abolish the law, remember? He fulfilled it in Himself. But He repealed the requirements of the law because if we had to live by the law, it would be a heavy, burdensome tax. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15-56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the victory? Freedom! Freedom from the law that we can't keep. Do you realize how expensive, how heavily taxed the Jewish people were simply by their own law? It was an expensive law. Keep your finger there and turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10.
verse 1. I think it was Paul, so I'm just going to say, Paul writes, For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they continually offer year by year, make perfect those who draw near. You know what that's saying? It's saying all the lambs, all the goats, all the rams, all the pigeons are a big waste of time. They can't heal you. They cannot forgive you. They cannot ultimately bring you to the place you got to be to be in God's presence. How much money did that cost? How burdensome. Every male in Israel was required three times a year to go up to Jerusalem and offer sacrifice. They were invited seven times a year to do it, and so most of the people did. Seven round-trip journeys to Jerusalem. There's some cost for you. And every time you went, you had to pay sacrifice. There's cost. It was expensive to try and take care of sin. It was taxing. Not to mention the burden, the weight of sin, by knowing the law and recognizing all the requirements of the law. They've counted 613 in Torah. Boy, add to that the Talmud, and you've got a weight of law. And this heavy, burdensome taxation was all over the people. He says in verse 2, otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. Consciousness. There's another part of taxation. The heavy weight of sin. Just your awareness that you're a sinner. Just the awareness that you're unclean. But, verse 3, in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Skip down to verse 18. Read the whole chapter when you get home tonight. It's amazing. But verse 18 says, Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. The tax is repealed. And I'll tell you what, I would vote for the candidate who stood up and said, I'm repealing all taxes. Sign me up. (laughs) No more taxes! The tax of sin, the weight of the law, repealed in Jesus Christ, paid in full by His blood. Back in Mark chapter 2. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Uh Uh-oh, here comes another problem. And they came to him and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. You don't go to a wedding and fast. You go to a wedding to eat. You know, there's cake and there's those little mints. I love those butter mints. I don't think those are on my my new diet, but but I, I love those. That's why you go there. You go to celebrate and to eat and the bridegroom's there and it's all about celebration and joy. And Jesus says, that's why I'm eating and drinking with Matthew and his friends. The bridegroom's here. Me. And we're all celebrating together. You don't, you don't fast. You don't mourn. You don't put yourself under a weight, a sorrow, a heaviness when the bridegroom's here. You do that when the bridegroom is taken away. He says, "In a day will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them, and they will fast in that day." What day is he talking about? Careful. Some would say today, and I would say no. Is the bridegroom taken away from us? Do we not have immediate access to Jesus? Is His Spirit not living within us? Today cannot be the day He's talking about because the bridegroom has not been taken from us. Matthew 28, verse 20 says, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And by the way, Jesus said that after His resurrection. From that point forward, hold on, Spence, when you blurt out like that, you're going to be wrong. I'm just telling you. What is the day he's talking about? There is a day when the bridegroom is going to be taken from them. Well, first of all, the them he's talking about here is pretty specific. It's those that he's with who are eating and drinking. Okay, It's not people down the road in the future, because I thought tribulation too 
But then I thought, no, that's wrong. Spencer's going to say that. I'm sure that's going to be wrong. (laughs) No. The day, the day, gang, was a day of deep sorrow and despair. And I doubt that any of the apostles ate over that weekend. The day when the bridegroom was truly taken from them and hung up on the cross, dying a horrible death. The day that they had to suffer in their betrayal, in their failure to Jesus. Peter said, I'll stand up for you. Yeah, right, Peter. Three rooster crows will prove you wrong. And that was a dark day when literally the bridegroom was taken from them. But he came back. And he said, after he came back, I am with you always. And truly, he would be with them always, just as he is with us always. And what about today? John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Now, I will give Spencer this. The days of tribulation will be a day, a time of the absence of the bridegroom. But the good news is all of his disciples, all of his followers will never be separated from him again. We will be with him in that day. You might add that. That's number 78, I think, in the list of reasons why I believe and there's a, there's a pre-tribulation rapture. Okay? Because we are to be with Him, never again separated from Him, and the tribulation is a time of absolute separation. The Holy Spirit is not here during those seven years. And if I am never to be separated from Him, if He is with me always, even to the end of the age, that means I'm going to be with Him at the time of the Holy Spirit's withdrawal from this world. These are not days of sorrow, gang. Now, this is the main reason why I point this out. These are not the days when the bridegroom has been taken from us. These are days of joy. This is the year of His favor. We are living in days of grace. We above all people have the most to be joyful about and to tell the world about. That's what, what I believe drives, drives our proclamation of the Gospel. It's the love that compels us and the joy that is in us because these are the days of Jesus. And He is present here. These are not days of sorrow. These are days where we're awaiting His coming and yet He's already with us and so we wait with worship and expectancy and great joy. By the way, I'm not saying don't fast because fasting is a biblical thing to do. But don't fast sorrowfully. Fast the way Jesus taught. Our fasting today, if you choose to fast, you fast to focus on the Lord. You don't fast in grief because of His absence. Okay, there's a big difference there. Jesus said in Matthew 6.17, You, when you fast, anoint your head. Wash your face. So that your fasting will be not, not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And this is not a future reward, it's an immediate reward. What's that reward? deeper relationship with Him. Remember what He said to Abraham? Genesis 15, verse 1. I am your reward. He'll reward you. You want to fast? He'll reward you for it. You'll be closer to Him. But let the fasting you do in this age, in the age of the church, let it be a fasting of joy. Let it be a secret thing where you're focusing on Jesus through the day. You don't have to tell anyone what's going on. Verse 21. Jesus says no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise the patch pulls away from it and the new from the old and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wine skins. And you know the whole wine skin thing, the wine skin stretches out to a certain amount with the wine that's put into it and then it, it kind of hardens there. And if you try to put new wine in it again, that new wine, all the gases that it produces, is going to try and expand that already expanded wine skin. It's going to burst. Same thing with patching up a garment. You want to make sure the patch and the garment are, are shrunk. You don't put a new patch on an already shrunk garment. It's going to tear, pull away. Why is this here? Jesus, responding to the Pharisees, responding to their issues so far, their issues about Him dining, with Levi and his friends. There are issues about him saying your sins are forgiven. There are issues also about this whole bridegroom thing and, and the fact that his disciples don't fast. 
They've just got one issue after another. And Jesus responds, and He's illustrating, listen, He's illustrating the incompatibility of religion and grace. Religion is the old thing. Grace is the new thing. And you can't just slap the new on the old. You've got to replace it completely. The old garment, the old wineskins are the law. The new cloth and the new wineskins, well, that's grace. The new wine is grace. And you can't present grace on the surface of your life while keeping the law underneath religious, legalistic tendencies. Why not? It'll tear you up. It'll rip you apart. It'll bust you open. We've got to understand that grace is never attained by keeping the law. If we fully got that, then all of Matthew's fit friends would be very comfortable in this place. And we wouldn't have a problem with the messiness. If we really understood that it is grace, it is grace, it is grace that saves us. For Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3, 23 and 24. That's amazing. Jesus didn't come to reform Judaism. He came to redeem people to a brand new thing. And what is that brand new thing? It's the church. It is the church. Ephesians 2.14, Paul said, He is our peace, who made both groups, both Jews and Gentiles, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity, the new man. The one new man is the church. Remember what he says? There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. And that's the beauty of the church. A Jew who gives their life to Jesus today, that sometimes are called Messianic Jews, but they're church. They're church people. They're Christians. They are part of the body of Christ. I'm asked sometimes, what happens to Messianic Jews when the church is raptured? Raptured! (laughs) Because they are the church. What happens to believing Gentiles when the church is taken up? We go! Because we are all... The church, that's the marvelous thing God has done. He has made something brand new. And you don't sow the new onto the old or it tears. Well, Jesus has caused quite a commotion. And we recognize in the Pharisees and the scribes the paralyzation of their faithlessness. And Jesus has dealt with the taxation of the law. We come to number four and final note tonight, identification. Identification, verse 23. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. Uh-oh. can't believe they're doing this. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Mark's wording is very interesting here. It says the Pharisees were saying... And the phrase we're saying, Woost tells us that it's the imperfect tense which indicates continuous action. They were saying, they were saying, they were saying. They would not shut up. They wouldn't stop. They were just coming after Jesus. They just kept on saying. This is the fourth issue now that the Pharisees have jumped on. Forgiving sins, eating with sinners, not fasting, and now picking the heads of grain on the Sabbath. They just Everything Jesus did was upsetting. Everything that he represented bothered them. And so they just kept on bringing it. They wouldn't let up nitpicking right and left. They're nitpicking and the apostles are picking the heads of grain. And they're picking on the apostles for picking the grain. And you know, it was totally lawful what they were doing. You could pick the heads of grain. No problem whatsoever. In fact, in fact that's God's fast food. If you're a traveler, you're traveling along, you don't there was no McDonald's. Praise the Lord, that's why they lived longer. There was no In N Out Burger, unfortunately. Love In N Out. 
You know, you're traveling and you're hungry. You go to the outskirts of a field and you had every right to pick some grain and eat. Grab some cereal, take a snack, and head on your way. Deuteronomy 23.25 says, When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So you can grab a snack and move on. Don't go and harvest it. That's called stealing. (laughs) But the law provided for exactly what Jesus' disciples were doing. It was okay to do it. Well, you might say, well, the issue was Shabbat, the Sabbath. They were doing it on the Sabbath. Nowhere in Torah law did it say you couldn't do that on the Sabbath. Nowhere. In fact, there's very little regulation on the Sabbath whatsoever. You know what the Sabbath means? Shabbat in Hebrew means cease. Cease. And if you look up and study down the requirements in the Torah law about the Sabbath, they were all about, look, stay home, hang out with your family, Men, don't work in the field. Ladies, get out of the kitchen. Everybody, just spend a day together with me. That was Shabbat. It was all about rest. God gives this amazing blessing, and the Jewish leaders turned it into an amazing bummer. More taxation. It was a heavy burden. And even by Jesus' time, only 500 years after the exiles returned from their, from their stay in Babylon, they come back to the land and there's already a huge Sabbath code of conduct. How far you could walk on the Sabbath. What you could do on the Sabbath. What you could not do on the Sabbath. And of course, picking grain. Well, they were rubbing grain in their hands. That's work. There was a belief in that time that if you, you can't spit on the ground on the Sabbath. Know why? Because it could form cement. That's work. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. How about today? Today, the Jewish halakha, which is their comprehensive set of rabbinical rules and practices based off of Torah, but written over now several centuries, millennia, the Jewish halakha identifies 39 distinct categories of correct behavior on the Sabbath. And each category has numbers of different things. Let me just give you eight of the categories. I think you'll enjoy this. I got these off of Aish.com, which is a Jewish website. And here are just eight. There's a category for cooking. All the requirements for cooking and how you're to approach or not approach that on the Sabbath. There's a category for driving. Whether you can drive or not, how far you can drive, what you can drive, what what behavior, you know, I don't even know if you can shift gears. Maybe you have to drive an automatic. I'm not sure on that one. (laughs) Handling money on the Sabbath. Telephone usage. I don't know what they're going to do with the new iPhone, you know, 5 there. Uh, Lights. Jewish hotels have it set that Shabbat rooms have the lights go on and off at a certain time, so you don't have to flip that switch and therefore break a sweat. (laughs) Watering plants and picking flowers. There's a requirement on that one. Writing, erasing, and tearing Letters has to be done a certain way. And my favorite one, toilet paper. I don't even know what the requirements are there. I'm hoping usage is allowed, but I don't know. So here the disciples, they're just picking grain, right? And the Pharisees are nitpicking on the disciples. How dare they violate the law by picking and rubbing grain on the Sabbath? Verse 25, and he said to them, and I love Jesus, have you never read what David did? Did you miss that one? (laughs) When he was in need and he and his companions became hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, that's the showbread, on the table of showbread in the holy place. Only the priests were allowed to eat that, gang. Nobody else. At the end of the week, the priests stacked it up, brought it out, and they ate it before the Lord. But David did. It's not lawful for anyone except the priest to eat. And he gave it to those who were with him. Did you guys remember that story? Jesus is saying. And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, which is a really funny statement. If you think about it, from their perspective, to say that man was made for the the Sabbath, that's just ludicrous. That's not how it works. God didn't create the Sabbath and then say, okay, now... I need some people to rest. Let's create man so that he can fulfill my Sabbath. That's not how it works, Jesus is saying. Now, i got to give you a side note because he pulls this story out of 1 Samuel 21. And if you go back and compare, and critics have done so, 
Verse 6 tells us the high priest who gave David the showbread was not Abiathar. Jesus says in the time of the Abiathar, the high priest, that David went and ate the consecrated bread. Well, in 1 Samuel 21, verse 6, the high priest was Ahimelech, Abiathar's father. And people have said, see, Jesus got it wrong. Contradiction in the Scriptures. Well, understand, Jesus didn't say that Abiathar was the high priest here. He just said, in the time of Abiathar the high priest. And that phrase is very critical to understand. He also doesn't say that it was Abiathar who gave David the showbread. He just said David went in there and took the showbread. He said, in the days of Abiathar, what's he doing? It was common rabbinical practice. What Jesus was doing, you know, you're walking around, you're not able to carry all the scrolls of the Old Testament law. And the rabbis would go and they would assign famous, uh, prominent people to certain times and they could say, you know, when Abiathar was alive, this happened. Well, guess what? That did happen when Abiathar was alive. Abiathar wasn't high priest yet. He was a boy. His dad was high priest, but he was there. And Abiathar ends up, historically for the Jews, being a more prominent high priest. All Jesus was doing was assigning a time frame. You remember back in the days of Abiathar, David did this. And he was speaking as any rabbi commonly would, attaching a prominent name to a time frame. So that's why that word is there. Just a little side note for you. But here's the point. Jesus refers to this story. And what he points out is not what's happening in the story, it's what's absent from the story. Think about this. Did you not remember the time David went in, got the showbread, ate it, and left? Do you remember that? Well, yeah, what's your point? Do you remember what is not in the story? Judgment. No judgment. God didn't strike down David. His men did not get vomitously sick. There, there was no consequence. There was no problem. There was no issue. The Bible never addresses that as being problematic. It was, it was a violation of the law. But it was a person in need. In fact, it was the anointed of God who was in need. David was in need. And you know what happens? Need supersedes law. It always has with God. Compassion is more important than law. Hunger. You know, someone who's hurt. As we'll see in the next story in chapter 3, we won't get to tonight. Man with a withered hand. He's hurt. And Jesus says, you know, in another place He says, you'll go and get an ox that's fallen out of a pit to save his life, but, but you don't want me to heal a person? There is something very wrong when law gets heavier and more burdensome and stands above compassion and grace. And we do it in the church. We have the Bridge Finance Policy Manual. Let me tell you something about that manual. And I will, I will ride this right out the door of the church and out of town on a rail if I have to. The Finance Policy Manual for this church is set up so that we do things with integrity and stewardship and we do it right. But you know what? Compassion dictates how the money is spent, not the policy. The policy is written, hopefully, with compassion. But if there's a situation where compassion dictates we violate our policy, then by all means, violate the policy. Because love is always more important to the Lord. Compassion is always the higher standard. Let me tell you something that's really ironic. The Jewish halakha that prescribes how the, the, the real Orthodox Jews are to live their lives, and they are so bound up by it. The Jewish halakha, halakha, which is often referred to as the Jewish law, halakha does not mean law. Their own word, check this out, halakha is the path one walks. The path one walks. What did Jesus say to Simon, Andrew, James, John, and Levi? Follow me. Walk on my path. Join me on the road. Let's walk together. All other roads, save the road that Jesus walked, all other roads, the road of religion, the road of self-reliance, the road of self-righteousness, all other roads will leave you spent, exhausted, and lost. But the road of Jesus, we walk with Him, we join Him, and we find life. And we find joy and compassion. 
In fact, when you walk alongside Jesus, it causes a commotion. <laughs> because He heals paralyzation, He repeals taxation, and He reveals His identification. And that's what He does in the last verse. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You want to know who I am? I am Lord of the Sabbath. What? To the Pharisees, there was only one Lord of the Sabbath because over and over in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's referred to as the Sabbath of the Lord. Exodus chapter 20, verse 10. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 3. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 38. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 14 makes it absolutely clear the Sabbath is the Lord's Sabbath. It belongs to the Lord. It is the Sabbath of the Lord. And Jesus says, I'm the Lord of Shabbat. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He owned the title. And to drive the point further home, Mark then places the next story right after it in chapter 3, where Jesus will heal on the Sabbath and further establish His Lordship as God. Jesus, in this one statement, identifies His humanity. The Son of Man! His humanity. And He identifies His deity. His Lord even of the Sabbath. Amazing. Jesus said, follow Me. So I encourage you not to take the road less traveled, but to take the road Jesus traveled. For on that road, as He said in Matthew 11, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you. Learn from Me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for Your gentle rest now to descend on our spirits, on our souls, on our bodies. I ask at the end of this evening, Lord, as we head to our homes, our various places tonight, that Your Spirit would go with us. And that You would revive us and reinvigorate us and encourage us, Lord, even as Your Word has done. We pray, Holy Spirit, that we will fall asleep thinking about Jesus and wake up to greet You with a new day. And we pray, Lord, the full day of Your coming would be quick. Until then, help us to walk Your road, Lord Jesus. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.